Well, good morning. Good to see everybody on a cold, wintry day here in Houston. We don't get many of those. Glad everyone's here. Let's go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time before we get into our passage this morning. Father in heaven, we're grateful to be able to gather yet again. We're grateful that you've given us each other. That you've given us the church, that we are not islands who are to be self-sufficient. We do not compete against one another for your attention, but you have joined us together as one body, all responding to and answering to one federal head, and that is Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can come in these doors and this gathering, and there is no status, there are no first team, second team, third team, that we are all who are found in Christ, are one in Christ because we have one baptism and one Lord and one Savior and we're a part of one church expressed locally here at Tomball Bible Church. Lord, we ask your blessing this morning as we seek to understand what you've put in your word. Let us be changed by it mightily that we might go forth as bold, clear ambassadors for the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Timothy 4 today. We're going to be in 2 Timothy 4, looking at just five verses out of that chapter. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a charge directed specifically to the pastor. But I don't want you to check out of this. I want you to stay in it with this. Because every believer in this church has a duty, a responsibility to understand this charge for your pastor. See, it's up to churches under the authority of God, to hold their pastors accountable to adhering to and obeying this charge in 2 Timothy as to what it is the pastor is supposed to do. And this is not an uncommon thing. In Galatians chapter 1, he gives this charge to the entire church to protect the purity of the gospel message. That letter to Galatians is not to the elders or to the pastor, it's to the entire congregation. So this is something that we all participate in uh, together. And our theme for 2 Timothy has been how to finish. How do we finish well in this Christian life as we've been looking at today? And Christians finish well in their pilgrimage here on earth as a unit. That we are a body. We are not an archipelago of islands who federate when convenient, but we are one land mass. That's how God's designed it for us. There's no paradigm in scripture for the lone wolf Christian. This church is a people and the people are Christians so brothers and sisters, perk up this morning and let's listen and hear to see what God has the duty for the pastor and elders to be and your role in holding those who lead you accountable. Because we're, this is for the good of all of us as we seek to fight the good fight of faith, to finish the race and to keep the faith. So let's look at this. Let's look at verse one <clears throat> together. Verse one, chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Whatever Paul's about to say is serious because he is invoking Timothy to remember, to know, to understand, to be aware in this moment that we are always in the presence of God and our Lord Jesus. He needs to know that. Paul has made clear the tone of this moment and this tone is a somber tone. And that word charge is a heavy word. That word charge in Greek, it means to exhort with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. Exhorting with authority. It's a forceful order of directive. 
This is not a slight suggestion. This is a directive, mandatory directive. And what is it following? In order to continue on with this somber tone that he's created, he says, I charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. He's going to give a, a, a slight rabbit trail here. Paul is going to go on about this one Jesus that he's in the presence of, that he is the judge of the living and the dead. That when all has been said and all has been heard and all humanity is standing before a deity at the end, that judge will be Jesus of the living and of the dead. So whether you are alive when he comes again or you die and go before him, Jesus is the judge of all of humanity. And Peter preached this sentiment as well. This isn't unique to Paul. In Acts chapter 10, verse 41, when he's in Cornelius' house preaching to them and that entire household believes and gets saved, he says this in verse 41. It says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He being Jesus. He's appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus would be the one doing the judging. And this coming, you see that? The, his appearing and his kingdom, that's Jesus' second coming. That's what Paul's talking about. That there is a day coming when Jesus will return. And it's an overwhelming moment displaying the undiluted power of God. And to those who are lawless, it'll be great terror and fear. But to those who have repented and believed, it is the greatest day of joy. Paul talks about the, the, the day of fear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing how by the appearance of his coming. That's how he's going to bring the lawless one to nothing is just by the mere appearance of his coming. That's a fearful, terrible day for those who are lawless. But Paul says in this very same chapter, down in verse 8, that it's not that way for believers. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have Love his appearing, looking forward to his appearing. Christians love the fact that Jesus is coming back and we long to see it. We say with the Apostle John in Revelation 22, amen and come Lord Jesus. We long for that moment as Christians. So it's not a day of fear to us, but it's his appearing and his kingdom. Because when the king returns to reign, he must have something to reign over. His kingdom. So his return, judgment, is always closely tied together in Scripture with his kingdom because he is the king who sovereignly rules over it. It's a weighty thing to consider Jesus Christ and his return. It, shed, it sheds new light on all that we do. Paul's tone here is earnest. Timothy must not forget that he ministers under the omniscient scrutiny of Christ. That he, as a leader in the church, as this pastor, is under the omniscient scrutiny of Christ. And that's replete throughout Scripture. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They're going to answer for this. And James 3, 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Or as the ESV says, we will be judged 
with greater strictness. So Timothy, know this, that your position, you're going to get an extra level of judgment, an extra level of scrutiny for what you have been called to do. So he's connected this charge to Timothy with the second coming of Christ, with Christ as judge and king of a kingdom. And this coming is looming. But what is the charge to young Timothy? The charge is in verse 2. The charge is preach the word. That's the charge. That's what Paul has given to Timothy. And this last chapter of his last letter to his most faithful disciple, the charge is preach the word because Jesus will judge. And he's coming again. Preach the word. The pastor will be held accountable primarily for the faithfulness of his preaching of the word. We notice here that the charge of the apostle is not administrate the business of the church. It's not facilitate the meetings of the church. It's not organize the missions team of the church. It's not create a structure for small groups of the church. The charge is preach the word. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less than the word of God. Everything else, according to Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that a pastor could fill his time with, ranks second at best to the preaching of the word. He must do that. So according to the Holy Spirit, budgets and buildings and administrations and facilitations, all of that can fall by the wayside with no grave consequence. But the one thing that the preacher, that the pastor cannot fail at is preaching the word. That's the one thing that he must get right. And did you notice that both Paul here in 2 Timothy and Peter in Acts chapter 10 connected Jesus as judge to the faithful preaching of the word? you see that? That connection is there. It is, it is a prominent thing, the preaching of the word. And what content is the pastor given to preach? The word, not his opinions, not his feelings, not his ideas, not his politics. Nothing but the word of God, that is it. To use the pulpit for anything else besides the preaching of the word is to commit ministerial prostitution. There is nothing but the word to be given. It's not a platform to sway voters in election years. It's not a bullhorn to sound your personal ideologies. And it's neither a moment for therapeutic musings. This is the moment that the only acceptable content The only content that will grow the church of Jesus Christ is the Bible. The word is what is to be preached. The text of the scriptures is the lifeblood of the church. Because remember the previous paragraph in chapter 3, 16 and 17? Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for training, for correcting, for reproving, for equipping the saints to every good work. Only the scriptures can do that. Timothy was told in chapter one, if you remember, to guard the good deposit, was he not? Guard this, Timothy. Don't let this gospel get diluted. And then he's told in chapter four to preach it, to give it out, to proclaim it. See, we only gather once a week as a church with everybody here for an hour and 15 minutes. How vain would I have to be to get up here and just talk about things that I think or ideas that I have or opinions that I have on living life in the 21st century? How audacious to waste your time like that. A little insight into how I prepare is as I study scriptures and I'm going to say something that's going to be particularly bristly or uncomfortable. 
and I'm forecasting, what if somebody comes up afterwards and asks me and challenges me on that? I want to be able to point to chapter and verse where that's found. And on the flip side, if I know I'm going to say something that everybody's going to love and make everybody feel good, everybody's going to come up afterwards and say, that was so great. I want to be able to point to chapter and verse where that comes from. So either way, I get none of the credit. Either way, what has moved the people to respond to God is the word of God, not the skill of man. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Preach the word and the word alone. And we do this because nothing else that any preacher could ever offer is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness to equip us for every good work except for the word of God. And that word preach is specific. It's not the same as teach. It's the Greek word caruso, and it's the idea of heralding or proclaiming. It has a, a sense of emotion, of, of, being, of a pleading, of a convincing. It's not just opening up and explaining the truth, because you can teach the Bible rightly without preaching it. But preaching must involve the teaching, but it involves an appeal also. And it involves a proclamation, a heralding. One commentator, Hendrickson, he says it like this. He says, preaching is generally the divinely authorized proclamation of the message of God to men. It is the exercise of ambassadorship. Did you hear that last three words? The exercise of ambassadorship. Is an ambassador allowed to have their own agenda as they represent a country in another country? Can they say and do whatever they want? Or do they have direct orders from their sovereign and they can only say and do that? That's all they can do. That's all preaching is. None of this content is original if it's faithful preaching. It's just this is what my sovereign has given me to proclaim. That's all I'm allowed to proclaim. Nothing more, nothing less. But it's the word. That's what I caruso. That's what I proclaim, what we herald. And we must do it. Timothy, you must do it in season and out of season. Be ready in both. It's easy to preach the word of God when everybody loves you for it. It's hard to preach the word of God when people hate you for it. But you have to do it in season and out of season, Timothy. You got to be ready to do it in both, regardless of environment, regardless of convenience. And the same is true for all of us as Christians. That we don't believe the truth and we don't speak the truth of God openly just when we think it's going to be received well by those who might be considered opposers. We do it all the time in season and out of season. Timothy can't just preach it when everybody loves him because the faithful minister keeps his hand to the plow even if the soil is like concrete. John MacArthur said of this preaching element, he said, the dictates of popular culture, tradition, reputation, acceptance, or esteem in the community or in the church must never alter the preacher's commitment to proclaim God's word. Nothing. George Whitfield's great hero of mine. He was a preacher in the 1700s during the first Great Awakening. He was an Englishman, but he came to the United States and went back and forth to England and the United States. And he used to preach outside of London in this area called Moorfields. And he'd preach out there, open air, and his voice could reach 20,000 people. Unbelievably gifted. God used him in massive ways. And, and he would preach out in, out in Moorfield in London. And after preaching one time, he said, I was honored today with having stones and dirt and rotten eggs and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. He called that an honor to have pieces of dead cat chunked at him while he preached. Please don't get any ideas for today. But then when he goes over to America, he becomes a rock star. 
He preaches and Benjamin Franklin starts gathering his sermons and publishing them. And Benjamin Franklin gets rich off of George Whitfield because they love him over here. But Whitfield doesn't care. In season or out of season, he's going to preach the truth. Whether they love him or whether they're throwing dead cats at him, he's going to preach the truth. And that's the call to Timothy. You preach the truth. And then he's going to give these directives as verse 2 continues on. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. And teaching, reprove. This is the work of the prophet calling sin what it is. This is the addressing of errant behavior. This is what Nathan did to David after he committed that sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the one who did this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Nathan didn't have to come up with his own standard of moral rules. He had the word of God to say, David, you have violated this. You have violated God's word. God's word exposes sin, exposes sinners. And the pastor must reprove, must do this because sin doesn't harm churches. We're all dealing with sin. We're all struggling with the presence of sin. But sin that goes unaddressed and unspoken of, that does do harm to the church. So Timothy, reprove and rebuke. Now, the rebuking is different than reproving because rebuking is after the motives behind it. Why you did this and that God hates it. That's what rebuking is. It's a heavy word. Addressing of errant motives. It's like Isaiah of old. I'm going to read you this passage from Isaiah. It's about seven verses and you need to hear all of them. So I'm going to read them. It says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's talking to Israel, but calling them Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now God speaks. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Do you see what's going on in Isaiah? God is addressing the people. I don't care if you keep making the sacrifices, which is what they were to do in accordance with Old Testament righteousness. It's like, I I hate them. And I hate the smell of your incense because your hearts and your motives are garbage. So it's not enough for you to just offer these sacrifices and go through these rituals. I'm after your hearts, your motives. So Isaiah is used to rebuke. So no pastor, no Christian should expect to be popular if they're going to continue to hold to the truths of God's word. But he's not just supposed to have those negative elements. There's these positive elements Exhort Timothy. 
exhort in your preaching. This is the emphatic encouragement and ushering on towards righteousness of the people. That you don't just lay guilt on them and tell them, here's how you sinned and here's your terrible motives. Now go deal with it. No, he says, no, Timothy, exhort, encourage them, bring them along. Show them that there is victory in Christ. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Build them up. Don't just lay on burdens and then leave them be. That's Jesus' critique to the Pharisees. That's what he says in Luke eleven forty six, 46. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He says, no, Timothy, you roll up your sleeves, you inspire, you encourage, you build up and encourage these people on towards love and good deeds. That's what you do. And you do this with complete patience. Timothy, this is going to take a while. It's not only important what the pastor does, but how he does it. It's with complete patience. Because all you're teaching, all you're preaching, you're reproving, you're rebuking, you're exhorting, it's not going to change one person in an instant, much less an entire people in an instant. So Timothy, labor with patience. I mean, this is like parenting, right? You tell them the truth. This is how things work in our house. They violate the truth. Then you correct them. You rebuke them. And then you encourage them on to obedience. And then you wake up and you do it again the next day because they forgot it all. That's what Timothy is being told to do. So we don't forget the imagery of chapter two. What is the imagery in chapter two? Soldiering, farming, athletic training. This takes time. It takes time to build up strength. It takes time to learn how to march. It takes time to grow and profitable yield of crops. So Timothy, just keep showing up for work. Keep putting in the effort. Let God handle the fruitfulness. You handle the faithfulness. You provide the effort. Let God do what he's going to do. And then teaching. With complete patience and teaching. Once again, never forget that the word of God, the word of God is what the source for all Christian maturity. Open the Bible and let it be manifest in your gathering. Timothy, just open that Bible and explain it. Timothy, Paul doesn't want Timothy to confront people with their sin without a biblical reference. He doesn't want people to be encouraged in the Christian life without biblical reference. Teach them, open it up and explain it to them. See, true pastors are not life coaches who who package their particular brand of self-help ideologies under the banner of religion. No, pastors have a set content. That's all. So give them that. Explain to them that. Because Timothy, you're an idiot. God is a genius. Just use what he's already written. Explain what he has already written. So did you notice all of that verses one and two, the weight of all those things? They're heavy. Teaching, rebuking, exhorting, preaching. He didn't tell Timothy comfort and soothe. He didn't tell Timothy, entertain and dazzle. He said, preach the word. See, ministry is not something to be undertaken casually. That you just kind of hop in and go do it. I'm reminded of John Knox, the reformer in the 1500s in Scotland, when he felt the call upon his life in that critical period of history to to be, be a preacher. He closed his door in his room and he stayed in there and he wept for days. Because he had a right understanding of the holiness of God and thus the weight and and the the true but good burden that it is to preach that holiness of God. He was not going to go into that pulpit without fear and trembling. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy to do. He's like, this is the most serious of all endeavors. This is not a game. 
Timothy, your ministry needs to have an edge on it. Why? Because there is a time coming. Look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Timothy needed to be aware of a looming reality. You need to know this is coming, Timothy. He needed to know that the more faithfully he preached God's word, the more faithless some in his church would reveal themselves to be. And they're going to bail on him, and they're going to go down the road to somebody, a teacher who will tickle their fancy. Timothy, you need to know that. You need to know that's coming. And tragically, the preacher, you, Timothy, you're the one that they need the most, but they're going to reject it. See, brothers and sisters, that time is now as well. So we live in an age where, a deluded age, where the church is just another capitalistic endeavor. Just start one up and get it going and do see what you can do. Just like you would do with a business. God's method for building a people is unsatisfactory to those who want church growth instantly. They've taken the methodologies of the marketplace and they've brought them within the context of the church. The sheer idiocy of church growth gurus should astound us. How can a man presume to expedite the work of God in the hearts of people? How can you manufacture that? How can you make it go faster than what the Holy Spirit will do? Just read John 3. The wind blows wherever it wishes, but no man knows where it's going. Same is true for the converted person. How can we presume to expedite that? How did the end game become bodies inside of the building instead of the Holy Spirit regenerating souls and indwelling those bodies? Paul, St. Timothy, this is what it's going to be. And that's the milieu in which we live. We live in a milieu in which... Sound teaching is probably the lowest possible priority of most any church. Churches have been packed with unbelievers and and stagnant infant Christians for years. And the leadership has allowed them to call the shots to create in the culture of the church. And if a pastor had the audacity to just open the Bible and teach from it, he would probably undergo a mass exodus from his own church. Martin Lloyd-Jones understood this. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in London in the 1940s. He's one of my great heroes. He preached through a bombing in London. Like pieces of the roof are falling during World War II. Amazing man. And he preaches and he's, he's coming back across the Atlantic on a boat. And this young man who knew who he was comes up to him and says, Dr. Jones, how's it going? Or Dr. Lloyd-Jones, how's it going in your new uh, church? Because he had just taken over Westminster Chapel in London. And he says, it's going marvelously. We are emptying the place. And the young man was confused. Like, what do you mean you're emptying the place? It's going marvelously. We're emptying the place. Because the pastor before him had been very soft doctrinally. And Lloyd-Jones was wise to understand and expect a level of attrition when he came in and started preaching the unadulterated word of God. So, Timothy, you need to expect this. Because people are going to demand that their current felt needs be addressed. That's the itching ears. Speak to me and what I want right now. And they will find a preacher who scratches that itch. If you preach to itching ears, you will never want for an audience. Everybody wants to be told that God's sole existence purpose is you. Everybody wants to be told that they're going to become healthy and they're going to become wealthy. Everybody wants to be told that the universe revolves around them and be given trite little sayings on how to have a better life. Everybody enjoys a spectacle that evokes emotion within them. Everybody enjoys that. Humans naturally want to hear how they can channel God so they can get to where they want to go. 
The same was true in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah was a herald. He was a, a Caruso, a prophet. And Jeremiah 5, 30 through 31, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. They had itching ears. But what will you do when the end comes? See, Paul wants Timothy to understand that the reality that there will be many men, men and many women willing to be ear-scratching teachers. So don't be alarmed at that. There's much money to be made in that. There's much fame to be had in that. So Timothy, understand that there will be no shortage of that. And, and did you notice what he said that they won't endure sound teaching? Because sound teaching is at times something you have to endure, right? Because if we're just going over the Bible, eventually I'm going to come to something that convicts me or is an awa- makes me aware of a shortfall in my own sin and how I'm violating the character of God. And I'm going to have to endure that because that's uncomfortable. I am going to have to endure that. And it's going to come across all of us unless you're Jesus and you're perfectly keeping everything in the scriptures. But if you're just like one of us who's forever on the continuum of Christ likeness, then we will have to endure at some point something that's uncomfortable. I have to be confronted with my own sin. So Paul says they're unwilling to do that. The grand majority of humanity does not want to be made to feel uncomfortable in their life patterns. They want to be told that how you're living is just fine. Just infuse a little God in and I'll make it better. Make it a super life. Paul's saying they won't endure sound teaching. In reality, if the majority of a population of anywhere approves of a certain preacher, it probably means he has a false gospel. If the people love it, everybody loves it, it's probably because it's not the truth. Jeremiah goes on in chapter 6, same strain of thought, dealing with these popular false prophets. He says in 6.13, For from the least of the, to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. They hated Jeremiah for his truth, but they loved these false prophets for their lies. Therefore, they will gather for themselves teachers who make them feel comfortable in their sins or even call their sins good, and they will scratch their ears all the way to hell. And that might sound heavy, but that's just what verse 4 says. Look at verse four. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's very words, he says in another place in Romans 1, 24 to 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Why did God give them up? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And it's also John's words. In 1 John 2, verse 3, And by this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. See, no one's going to be saved by myth. No one's going to be regenerated and made new by a lie. Only the truth can set people free. That's what Jesus says in John 8. You will know the truth and truth 
will make you free. Lies don't set anyone free. Now, if these myths, if these lies that these people have turned aside into so because they have itching ears and it leads only to slavery, to sin and to death, can we in good faith say of our friends and our family who are in churches like that? Well, they seem to like it. I mean, it's not great, but it's not like the pastor is like an atheist or something. Well, you know who else wasn't an atheist and gave the most deceptive message of all time? Just turning the truth into a myth. The serpent in the garden. See, Satan's a devout theist. He knows that God exists. And he just twists the truth into a lie. That's his, that's his game. That's his scheme. No, we plead with loved ones to depart from ear-scratching churches because heaven and hell are the stakes. And he summarizes in verse 5. As for you, Timothy, in contrast to these false teachers, this is the third time he's used that terminology. Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, you remain distinct from distortion. You are different. You lead differently. You preach the word. You reprove. You rebuke. You exhort. You teach. And you do this with exceeding patience. For your love for the people. You fight for sound doctrine. Always be sober-minded. Always think Clearly, always evaluate ideas at their core. Run them through the grid of Scripture and then eject them when they contradict. Be sober-minded. Timothy, you don't get the luxury of pretending like these lies don't have any consequences. Other people may do that, but Timothy, you're the pastor. You can't do that. You have to be sober-minded. John Calvin said in his day of the same scenario, he said, the more determined men become to despise the teaching of Christ, the more zealous should godly ministers be to assert it and the more strenuous their efforts to preserve it entirely. And more than that, by their diligence to ward off Satan's attacks, say sober-minded and endure suffering. Oh, Timothy, you're gonna suffer for this also. This is the 14th mentioning of endurance of suffering in this book. It's the last one also. Timothy, you endure suffering. You will not be popular for this ministry mindset. You're not going to make people feel comfortable. A pastor mentor of mine, he told me one day, he said, Stuart, I don't want to make anybody who is not in Christ comfortable. I want to preach and so as a way to make Christ's people comfortable and the lost exceedingly uncomfortable because you can't preach a message that simultaneously nourishes the saved and pleases the lost. Either you will nourish the saved and enrage the lost or you will starve the saved and please and placate the lost. You can't do that, Timothy. You endure suffering. But you don't forsake those who are not saved. The next phrase is do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, proclaim the gospel loudly. Always tell people that there is a true shepherd and he has an open invitation to be a member of his flock and he's a better shepherd than those hirelings. He laid down his life for the sheep to purchase your freedom from the sin and the death that you rightly incurred. Timothy preached that good news that by faith alone, in Christ alone, they can have the shackles of sin broken like brittle clay as Jesus Christ ushers them into glory. Preach that, Timothy. And fulfill your ministry. This is what Timothy is to fill his life with. See, you don't don't do pastoring. You don't do ministry half-hearted. 
if you're going to step into a role like Timothy, like a missionary. You don't kind of do it on the side. Timothy, fulfill it. This is your whole life. This is what you do. You take no days off. You're in and out of season. You have a mission to fulfill. You give yourself to this holistically. As I was reading this week, I came across this quote from another Scotsman. But he was in the 19th century. His name's William Taylor. He described the minister's mindset like this. And it was striking. He said, let it never be forgotten then that he who would raise to eminence and usefulness in the pulpit and become wise and winning souls must say of the work of the ministry, this one thing I do. He must focus his whole heart and life upon the pulpit. He must give his days and nights to the production of those addresses by which he seeks to convince the judgments and move the hearts and elevate the lives of his hearers. This one thing I do. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Do one thing. Do this. Preach the word. Did you notice in all of those verses, there's a lot of commands, but there's no metric to measure whether or not Timothy has fulfilled successfully those commands. You need to note that as Christians And as we seek to hold pastors and elders accountable in this, this is a call, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, to Christian excellence, not numerical performance. Because Timothy, how do you know if you've preached it in and out of season? What's the scale of measuring whether or not you did it? How do you know you have had complete patience? How do you, what's, what's the measure there? Fulfill your ministry. Paul didn't give him, hey, here's six tips to identify whether or not you fulfilled your ministry. He just said, fulfill it. Because this is how God does things. Remember Isaiah, where he's saying, I hate your sacrifices. I'm repulsed by the blood of those sacrifices. I hate the smell of your incense. I'm not going to listen to your prayers. They're doing religious things. They're doing what they should have been doing in the Old Testament law, per the letter. But God says, I'm not after that. I'm not after some performance. I'm after the entirety of you. I'm after all of you. So that's why he gives these big open-ended charges to Timothy. So that he can never sit back on his haunches and go, yep, I completed my ministry because I hit A, B, C, and D and I'm done. Or I preached the word because I I filled in all the pieces into this tablet that I made, this template for preaching. So I've done it. No, you're forever increasing. You're forever in pursuing excellence. One pastor said that excellence is available to any believer who is willing to pay the price. That's what Paul's calling Timothy to do. That's what we're all called to do, is pursue excellence. God doesn't give us a chart with numbers that we can achieve and improve and then show people our stats, hey, I am I'm all right as a Christian. It's just faithfulness. It's character. It's drilling into your character, not into your performance. Because numerical success is available to anybody willing to manipulate the system. But we aren't after that. God's not after that. God's never been after that. He's after fulfilled ministries. He's after the word rightly preached. He's after brothers and sisters reproving one another, rebuking and exhorting one another with complete patience. That's what he's after. He's after the very blood that pumps in your veins. Will that blood preach the gospel when it's very unpopular? Does that blood curdle at the sound of ear-scratching preaching? Will that blood endure suffering because the blood of our Savior 
was spilt for his chosen children. And we are to give all that we have in faithfulness and service to him. We are saved by faith. Therefore, we labor in faith. We, aren't, we don't labor in works. We labor in faith because we're saved in faith. Because beginning to end is faith. According to Romans 1.17. That's how we finish well. That's how we magnify the majesty of Jesus Christ in a world that hates him. And we exalt him as a specific and a peculiar people. We exalt him as the one true son of the living God. Lord, we thank you for Timothy. We thank you for a young preacher that you've been given these charges to. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for an old man who's at the end of his life, who, who we can see their correspondence as a faithful church-planning missionary, pastor, preacher, apostle, to his most faithful disciple, that these are the critical things that he felt he had to pass along. And you've chosen in your divine sovereignty to inspire them through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving them to us. Let us have mindsets that we labor in faith and not in works, that you're not after building our stats to flip over our baseball cards so that you can know how good we are, but you want all of us. You want the very blood that pumps in our veins. Father, we long to be living sacrifices and keep us from crawling off of the altar. Let us offer up a sweet and acceptable aroma to you as we faithfully live out this life for the cause of Jesus Christ, for the glory of the triune God of the universe. We pray these things in Jesus' name.